what we created with LBK was that space where you could ask those questions, where we were going to preempt those questions by showing you like, these are the absolute basics of how to use tools, because there's a good chance there's a lot of people that don't know the difference between a flathead and a crosshead screwdriver, for example. And people are afraid of looking stupid or feeling stupid, so they just don't even attempt it. And so that's a barrier right there. Welcome to Restart Radio. I'm Dave Pickering, and I make a monthly podcast for the Restart Project. The Restart Project is a London-based charity and social enterprise whose mission is to spark reflection and change in our relationship with gadgets. Many repairers love their bikes, and over the last two years, cycling has become a much more popular and useful mode of transport. Once our public transport system started to feel like a risky move, bikes across the capital were pulled out of storage. But in addition to dusting off the cobwebs, many of those bikes needed some urgent maintenance to get them into working condition again. Jenny Gwizowski is founder and director at the London Bike Kitchen, who will be celebrating their 10th anniversary in March this year. And she's chair of the Women of Colour Cycling Collective UK. She champions inclusivity and independence in cycling and bike maintenance, making massive efforts to encourage everyone to feel safe and be supported in the workshop space. For the first Restart Project podcast of 2022, I talked to her about the basics of bike maintenance and why it's so essential. And we also discuss developments in bike repair and cycling in general. My name is Jenny Gwizdowski. I am the founder and director of the London Bike Kitchen. I'm also one half of the Wheel Suckers podcast, and I wrote a book called How to Build a Bike. And I'm also the chair of the Women of Color Cycling Collective. So I think it's fair to say I like cycling. I believe in the bicycle. I think it's a revolutionary silver bullet, a panacea, let's say. It's a panacea and uh, more people should be cycling. And that is my mission in life. Yeah, I mean, you, you do lots of different things. I was I was almost tempted to say, you know, you wear a lot of hats, but I feel like it's more you wear a lot of wheels. Bikes are involved in everything that you're doing. Different bikes for different rides, <laughs> I like to say. Can you give us a rundown of what the London Bike Kitchen does before COVID and after? Yeah, <laughs> and <now>. during. <laughs> during, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so pre-COVID, PC, we opened in 2012, March 2012, We're coming up on 10 years, and the main goal of the LBK workshop was to teach bike maintenance. So we call it an education space. It's a very small workshop because space is a premium in London, but knowledge doesn't take up any room. So we focused on the classes that people could come in and take with their bike and work with a professional instructor learning how their bike works in the first place. Like a lot of people think it's this magic piece of metal and they're afraid of it if something goes wrong. And the idea behind LBK is the more you understand how something works, you're not going to be afraid of it, which means you're going to ride it more. You might even encourage other people to ride it with you. So that's kind of the core of our workshop. And then everything we did 
around that. So we did a drop-in workshop where people could come in and just work on whatever needed working on kind of one-off things like, oh, my gears are not indexed or I have a puncture. And then we did classes. So that was like a set curriculum where we had an agenda and like topics to cover. We also did a women and gender variant night because we realized you have to create stepping stones for people who are not generally encouraged to cycle or even tinker with their bikes. And then we started the Women of Color Cycling Collective. That was in 2018, and that's been growing slowly over the years. So that was before COVID. And now we've been focusing a lot on, well, what can we do safely? And that moved us to teach online. And there's been an evolution of online teaching and a discovery of like what works, what doesn't work, how can we be flexible? I personally love this challenge. Like I love teaching. I used to be a teacher. I love learning about different ways to convey information. And then the other thing that we focus on, which is our bread and butter and kind of keeping us alive right now is we just became like a regular bike workshop where we're fixing bikes for people. And I don't want to knock it because again, it's helping us. We're paying the rent. We didn't get any sort of rent holiday from our landlord. We managed to pay everyone still, but we still miss the DIY workshop. We miss teaching. So we are making do with what we've been dealt at the moment. (laughs) I mean, it sounds like you're providing very important services to people during these times. I mean, I did a bit of teaching, you know, teaching people how to do podcasting over Zoom and stuff during the the darker times. And and, And I know that it wasn't really just about teaching it was also about giving people social interactions that they just weren't getting anywhere else and it sounds like we're fixing the bikes instead of helping people to learn how to fix the bikes you were still allowing people to get out you know a lot of people went walking I imagine a similar thing happened with bike riding yeah there was a real I don't want to say panic but like people were pulling bikes out of the shed that hadn't seen the light of day for decades and they're like can you fix this up and we had like waiting lists of two three weeks of people waiting to get their bikes fixed up. That was the positive side of it. I mean, the downside was that people were a bit shocked at how much it was going to cost for their bike to be revived because it hadn't been looked after for decades. One of the big things I'm an evangelist about is regular small bits of maintenance, just little and often. Things like cleaning your chain, pumping up your tires go such a long way in keeping your bike in decent condition, keeping your bike indoors. Like I do a class called bare minimum maintenance. Like what is the bare minimum you can get away with, which is not nothing. I didn't say it was nothing. You know, if you ignore your bike and it's been sitting in a shed, exposed to the elements for, you know, 20 years, you're going to have to pay to get it fixed. Like there's probably stuff that's stuck. You need all new components. So that was the sad part. Like we let a lot of people down. (laughs) But I hope that they're writing now and they've discovered, you know, this is a really great way to get around and get exercise and move in a city where it just doesn't make sense to drive. And it's completely a COVID safe thing to do. But also one of the things that we've been trying to do is avoid using public transport during these times. It's a liberation to be able to like get out there on your bike. I mean, I'm just thinking, you know, I haven't got a bike and I live in Lancaster, which is quite rural. I thought this often when walking, seeing people ride past me, thinking, whoa, how much more liberating would it be to have a bike? So how did the London Bike Kitchen get started? What, what's your origin story? 
I lived in Japan for three years, and I'm originally from California, where you just start driving the minute you turn 16, because that's the liberation, right? And when I went to Japan, my school gave me a bike to get around on. And I was like, what is this? Like, I want a scooter or something, you know? And then realized very quickly, like, in Japan's a very different kind of environment to ride in, where there is no real infrastructure. The infrastructure's in their minds. They really respectful of all road users. You can ride on the pavement. You can ride on the streets. You can park your bike wherever you want. And that's when I realized this is a wonderful way to get around. It turns a 20-minute walk into a five-minute bike ride. And I'm on my own schedule. And I can still carry stuff around. I loved it. And then when I moved to London, I got a bike and it was like you had to fight for your life. It's really funny because the, the double yellow lines on the road, I thought that was the bike lane. <laughs> I was like, this bike lane is so small. <laughs> but it, it does feel like that. It still feels like that sometimes. And that's where shared adversity brings people together. And so that's when that identity of I am a cyclist got cemented. Whereas before that, it was just like, oh, I just ride a bike sometimes. And I started getting really into the idea of like, how can I take care of my bike? So I just started asking people like, I really want to learn a bit more about my bike. I've just bought this frame. I bought a frame from a bike jumble. It was like a 1960s Claude Butler. You know, where do I start? And people were giving me conflicting answers. And I was like, why isn't there a place where I can just learn how to fix my bike? And my flatmate at the time was also from California. And she said, oh, do you have a bike kitchen here? And I was like, no, what's that? So the first one is set up in L.A., and the idea is that it's a volunteer-run space. It's a, like a warehouse that's just full of work stands and bike parts, secondhand bikes. Lots of people who are there for if you have questions. They have programs for earn a bikes where kids can come and learn how to fix bikes and then they get the bike that they've been working on. So I just fell in love with this idea. And at that time, I was not a mechanic by any means. I was working in marketing, but I was just really intrigued by it. And I decided I'm going to set up a bike kitchen. I submitted a grant application with the LCC for this idea. And then I got it. And that's when shit got real. And I was like, oh my God, I have to do this now. They're giving me five grand for tools, which by the way, is probably not enough, but I didn't know anything at the time. And I met some amazing people at the beginning who were really kind and gave me some advice and signed the lease on a small shop that was on my route to work. And the landlord at the time liked the idea so much. They gave me the first year's rent for free, which I think is unheard of now, I would be shocked. Don't know what possessed me. I was just in this mode of I'm not taking no for an answer. And yeah, like open our doors in March of 2012. And it's just been like baptism by fire, how to run a business. It's just been experimentation over the years. And we've been going 10 years now. And we'll see what happens in the future. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Why are you so passionate about repair and what drives you in the work that you do? I hate waste. 
it's a crime. That's a crime against humanity. We are resource rich, especially in the Western world, and we have the resources to, if we were a bit more equitable, to redistribute. And it doesn't happen. And what ends up happening is we throw away a bunch of stuff. And I'm just like, this is ridiculous. And I think part of it also comes from my parents who were both immigrants and came from countries that were war-torn, World War II, and were hoarders because of that, because of the war. You know, the intergenerational trauma gets passed down. And some people pick it up and some people don't. And I ended up picking up the hoarding, but also the make, do, and mend end of that, where it's like, this is still useful, I can fix it, or like I could repurpose it for something else, rather than just throwing stuff away. The waste that's created now with our economies that are based on planned obsolescence is just, it's obscene. <laughs> and that's that's where my fire comes from. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, I, I can relate to that in lots of ways. And what kind of barriers do you come across in the bike repair landscape. What stops people from repairing? Part of that is the intergenerational loss of knowledge transfer. Right. I was really lucky. My dad taught me how to use tools. I vividly remember my third grade science project where I had to do some electrical wiring for like an eight-year-old. My dad taught me how to use a soldering iron. So like basic tool, like how do you use a hammer and nail without hurting your hand? Like that kind of stuff. And he'd let us play with practicing how to use tools. So I'm really indebted to my dad for normalizing that. And also coming from a family where we just repaired things. My mom was really good at sewing. Nowadays, I think people, because our economies were changing after World War II, people moved away from hands-on fixing stuff from farming. My dad's side, they were farmers. They were dirt poor farmers in Poland. And my grandmother made everything. She made beer and bread and sauerkraut. I have no idea how to do any of that. So things like that that get lost, it becomes a barrier because that kind of stuff isn't a part of someone's growing up where, oh, I just know righty tidy lefty Lucy. I just know it. So what we created with LBK was that space where you could ask those questions, where we were going to preempt those questions by showing you these are the absolute basics of how to use tools, because there's a good chance there's a lot of people that don't know the difference between a flathead and a crosshead screwdriver, for example. Right. What's the difference between a screw and a bolt? That kind of stuff. And people are afraid of looking stupid or feeling stupid, so they just don't even attempt it. So that's a barrier right there. You've got extra barriers for people of color, for women, for marginalized genders. Like those are extra walls that are put up in workshop spaces, I would say, where it's like, oh, I don't feel like I belong here. I don't feel welcome here. So I'm not going to stay here. I'm not even going to try entering. So that's one of the other reasons why we've created the WAG Nights and the Women of Color Cycling Collective is it's a stepping stone. It's just to encourage more people to do this kind of stuff with bikes. With regards to barriers, to repairing the bike itself, I would say we get old extinct bike parts from old bikes that are not being made anymore. And then we have the current new bikes that are coming out with proprietary fittings and proprietary parts. That 
drives me crazy. I'm like, that needs to stop. I wish I could smack the industry and just be like, don't do this. I know all you care about is money, but think about something else for a second. Think about the repairability of a bike. And I know they don't. So yeah, that's going to become a barrier, especially I think with the e-bike stuff and e-bike conversion kits, we're going to face some problems there in the near future. Right. The more bikes become just another part of the gadget economy, if you like. Yeah. The internet of things and all of that stuff, the more the bikes are inaccessible the same way the phone I'm holding in my hand is inaccessible. Yeah. And are spare parts as difficult to obtain for bikes as they are for electronics and white goods? And are they often too expensive for people to consider repairing a better option compared to buying a new bike? Yes, yes, yes. All of this, especially now because of Brexit and COVID related shortages, we can't get like basic things that you would replace. Like a couple months ago, we had a nine speed cassette shortage, which meant that anyone who had a nine speed bike and needed their drivetrain replaced, we couldn't do it. And now it's moved on to 10 speed cassettes. It's a gamble. We don't know which of those like common parts are going to not be available. Usually you can find them, especially on eBay. It's the old bikes that have really difficult parts. I say that actually this last week we had to find a seat bolt clamp that only Giant made. They made this seat bolt clamp that wasn't a circle, but it was the shape of a D. And the seat post was also not round. It was the shape of a D. And so it just meant that that frame would only fit that D-shaped seat post that you had to buy from Giant and same with the seat clamp. So that was annoying and is the Campagnolo model, like Campagnolo make group sets. They did this thing where it's like, oh, you had to buy it from them. But they're big enough that it was easy to get those parts. But now we're seeing more smaller brands cropping up, creating their own proprietary shapes of things, their own thread pitch, their own diameters. And it's just like, please don't do this. <laughs> like This is not making this bike easy to fix. And again, they're just trying to keep someone as a customer buying from them. Right. I mean, so it's the same kind of logic that we're seeing in electronics. It sounds like bikes need to be included in their right to repair. Yes. I was like, can we tag on to that? <laughs> I don't have the energy to like start a new campaign and fight all the big manufacturers, but I would love for bikes to be a part of right to repair. A lot of our restart volunteers are also avid cyclists and there seems to be an overlap between those who are keen to repair as much of their stuff as possible and those who also enjoy cycling. Do you find this with the people who come to the London Bike Kitchen? Yeah, yeah, I think there's a lot of overlap. I think it has something to do with like having an engineering mind where you're curious about how things work and bicycles, while they are simple, in other ways, they require some very specific repair information. And I think this is where we would get people coming into us and asking for help. But I would also say like a lot of our service users are very keen on extending the life of whatever they have, whether it's their phone or a computer, clothing, Pre-COVID, we were about to move into a larger workshop space and we were going to expand our remit from only fixing 
bikes to fixing clothing, fixing electronics and electrical items. We're going to pair up with Restart Project to offer repair cafes. And then COVID hit. And so we didn't want to expand at that point. It's still definitely an idea because I think people would love that. I really think our customers would love a space where they could just fix anything. They could ask questions about it. It's a dream of mine. I would love to see happen. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense because there's transferable skills, isn't there? Yeah. Once you learn to fix one thing, then you've got some skills that you can use on another thing and on and on. Absolutely. So how did the London Bike Kitchen adapt last year? You moved quite a lot of your activities online. How is that going? Yeah, so we experimented with Zoom, like everyone. It was a bit intimidating at first. We started with intra-maintenance class topics, but it was taught in this like one-to-many format where it was a webinar. So I was just like speaking to my screen for an hour and it was exhausting. It was really, really hard. I realized I couldn't riff like I did in a workshop for people in front of me as students. I realized I was like, oh, we're competing with YouTube. And so after about, I think, eight months of doing this, experimenting with different topics, did a survey of our students and the majority of people were not using the knowledge that we were giving, that we were teaching. And that was really hard to hear as a teacher. You're like, wait, what? I spent all this time teaching you and you just don't do anything with your bike still? And that's when I started working on this idea of the fix-along and like experimenting with it as well in some areas where we would do a puncture patch along. And in these sessions, I could see the students on the screen and we were doing the same thing together. So we were patching inner tubes together. And it was a really nice experience. It was like the social thing, but it was interactive. And that made it feel more like there was some accountability there. And so I started putting together a program where it was like, well, what else could we do like this? And then Hex Club was born, where I have a group of 10 students. We meet every week at the same time. We do the M check and we clean our bikes every month because this is basic maintenance that needs to be done regularly and your bike will be happier for longer. And so we do that every month and then we start changing things up where we take off our chains together. And some people change their chain and put a new one on. Other classes, we take off our brake pads together, inspect them, clean them, put them back on or replace them. We've done a sushi roll along. We did a protein ball roll along, try to mix things up. And it worked really well because people were actually doing the thing. And the idea is that you're building habits through repetition. And that's what we're aiming for is like people making bike maintenance a part of their life. (laughs) We're recruiting for that right now. And we start in January. Can you tell us about the women and gender variant nights that you hold and why they are such an important aspect of your work? I wanted to do something like this from the get-go. 
Part of it was a lot of the other bike projects around the world run a separate women trans femme night. Ours was brought into existence by one of our volunteers because they were gender variant. You have to get a champion in for the groups that you're trying to reach. And it's really important to find people who are part of the minority groups that you're trying to reach as the people that are helping you create that. And it helps inform your work, taking on board information from people who are in that community and trying to just support them the way that they want to be supported. Creating this type of a group was really important because there is still a huge gender gap when it comes to cycling, people just riding in general. I think it's still like 20% women and the rest are men. And one of the reasons why I started up WCCC, the Women of Color Cycling Collective, is because they're an even smaller group, the niche within a niche within a niche, and people feel lonely. And part of this is addressing loneliness. When you find people who have similar life experiences to you, you feel validated and it encourages you to do it more. And setting up both groups, the WAG Nights and WCCC, we had kickback from general public for both of them, which is silly to me because I'm like, don't you want more people riding bikes? Like, this is one of the ways to do it. Like, you should be celebrating that these groups are forming and seeing how you can use any sort of privileges that you have, that you can help people out And that's kind of why I've created these groups is like I'm using my privileges, my experience in the bike industry to get more people in it. That's my goal. I'm sadly not surprised, but I agree with you wholeheartedly. I mean, if you're thinking about bikes as well, like there are barriers to do with who are considered to be the people who should ride bikes and also who are considered to be the people who should fix things. So there's all sorts of barriers around that. But there's also reasons why those communities, women and gender variant people and people of colour might want to get together and talk about like, how do we ride bikes in this world that we inhabit? You know, like as someone who I guess could probably come along to your gender variant group, I'm super visible sometimes when walking down the street. A person of colour is super visible whether they paint their nails or not, they're super visible. And yeah. so working out how to ride safely, how to how to feel comfortable and how to go into rooms and feel like welcomed, right? Yeah. So I mean... Yeah. Are there ways and like techniques or tips that you have learned through doing this work around the key elements in creating safe and encouraging spaces for repair? I would say one of the main things is you find the people who are already doing it, who are part of the minority groups that you're trying to support, because there is an instant recognition when you walk into a room and you see someone who's like you or similar to you that tells you without saying a word, like, are you welcome here? Are you allowed to be here? And if someone is running the group who is non-binary or trans or person of color, and you see that and you are part of that group, that's like an instant way to get people to feel like I belong here. This person is here. That means I can be here. This is for me. I've been thinking about that phrase, if you can't see it, you can't be it. But unfortunately, I think that's overused in like marketing. Mm. 
So people think like, oh, I need to get more, you know, trans people in my photos for this brand. And it's like, no, that's not where this belongs. Like this belongs in like our classrooms, in community groups, in workplaces. It's not about advertising. Right. And I think that is the single most important thing that any group could do. You have to find that champion and pay them. Right. Don't ask them for free labor. You got to pay people for their work. And especially if they're helping you create something bigger. Unless, like, it's tough because I, when I set up the WAG Nights and the WCCC, like, we're all volunteers. In certain aspects, we do have that facility. We do pay people for their, their work. But being honest about that, as well. And if you're a big brand, a big company, and you have the facility to pay people, then do it and pay them well. Because part of it is like, you know, reparations, that kind of stuff as well that plays into it. Right. Absolutely. And that's the, the thing. When people have these objections to these spaces existing, it's because they feel like they're not allowed in those spaces because they're like a white man or whatever. They're already allowed in all the spaces. And the only kind of reason why we need other spaces is so that people can feel comfortable. Yeah. Because, I mean, you know, we're already touching on some of the areas, some of the intersections. There's disability and there's, there's yeah. you know, class and all sorts of things. There are also barriers and that I'm sure will come up in those spaces that you you're creating anyway because people aren't monoliths we're not just one of these many different identity labels we can use i mean yeah we're we're multi-sectionality yeah, we're, exactly <laughs> exactly and this is another thing is make it really clear in your text like who the space is for and we we made it clear like we welcome people socialized as women trans women non-binary people but Initially, myself and Jules Walker, who's at Lady Velo on social media, we saw a need for some sort of at least just a social meetup. And that's what it started out as at Look Mum No Hands, which is a bike cafe in, in central London, where women of color could meet up because there's so few that it was like, well, am I the only one? Or are there other women of color who ride bikes? And people came to the first meetup. There were about 10, maybe a bit more, maybe 15. And we just left it as this real social event. And then it started to grow over the years. In light of the murder of George Floyd and Black Lives Matter protests last year, we realized our group was becoming more of like a support space for politically related issues as well. And it galvanized the group and people wanted to do more to support the group as well. So we became a registered charity. That is a, another evolving group and it's fascinating to see how things change right but again it's a it's a support group these kinds of spaces are needed unfortunately i wish they didn't have no, to exist sure. right sure but we Absolutely. don't live in a equal society which means we need to create these extra stepping stones for equity basically it's heartening, though, to hear that it's growing, that people are coming together, that people are claiming some space, particularly in London, which is such a diverse city. The cyclists should be diverse and should be supported to be able to be as free when they're riding their bikes as anybody else might be. Yeah. Repairing your bike instead of replacing it, is environmentally friendly, but so is choosing to cycle instead of driving a car. How have you seen the conversation around cycling change in the last few years, and what do you hope to see in the future? When I got started, 
in 2011. This was about the tail end of the fixie craze, where people were really into fixed gear bikes. For people who don't know what that is, it's the track bike. So it's the type of bike that's used in the velodrome. It does not have brakes and it's direct drive, which means if you're pedaling forward, the wheel obviously moves forward. But if you pedal backwards, the wheel moves backwards. And This also coincides with, I think, the predominant ideal use of cycling space was vehicular cycling, where people had to mix with traffic. And the idea is that you would be riding the same speed as traffic, which meant you were safer, which I completely disagree with. And then I think what's happened now is we're seeing that vehicular cycling only works for a certain group of people, able-bodied, fit, responsive to the environment, and then it leaves everyone else out. So new cyclists, children, people who have non-standard cycles, like if they're trikes, they're quite wide, cargo bikes. So we're seeing this trend for advocating for segregated cycling infrastructure, which is great because, and I remember Wheels for Wellbeing talking about this. So Isabel Clement is the director for them and they are a disability cycling charity. And when you build for the most vulnerable, you create the most inclusive infrastructure. So that's been a welcome change in like the philosophy behind cycling infrastructure. And also seeing the change in the interest of types of bicycles. So Like I said before, it was like the fixie, as light as possible sort of thing. And now people are rediscovering gears. I remember in the early days of LBK, someone actually asked in one of our classes, like, why would you want gears? And we were like, because you might want to carry a heavy load. Like you might have a trailer behind you. So yeah, gears are good. People are going towards like utilitarian cycling where you've got a rack on the front or back and you're carrying more stuff. Cargo bikes are becoming very trendy. I hope it's not a trend. I hope they stay because I think cargo bikes are great. E-cargo bikes could easily replace a car in terms of like needing to get somewhere and haul a lot of stuff. Family cycling is now becoming a thing. People wanting to ride with their kids. So real diversity, real spread in the kinds of cycling that people are doing. If you want to get into bike parts, like wider tires, smaller chain rings, better saddles are coming out. Again, I welcome these particular changes. I don't like the proprietary stuff. I hate press fit bottom brackets. I hate electronic shifting. I hate the move towards internal cable routing, which means that all the cables are hidden from view, which makes them really hard to maintain or do any sort of servicing with. You have to dismantle the entire bike, basically, to replace a cable or do a disc brake service. So there's some good things and some bad things. I don't like the mixing of electronics with bike parts. However, I do think they have their place. I think people who have RSI or like poor hand strength, electronic shifting is actually really good for that. So yeah, there's some good changes happening. I would like to see bike brands get more political 
like in a good way in terms of just trying to encourage more people to ride bikes. So trying to influence better infrastructure. I'd like to see governments use the research that is coming out about who's riding, what would make people ride more. I think Tiffany Lamb came out with some research recently about like delivery riders because they're on the roads all the time and there's no toilets, there's no public toilets. There's no public water fountains and they need these things. They're just riding all day. So things like that would make cities just more livable in general. So again, it's that idea you serve the most vulnerable, you end up helping everyone. Yeah, I mean, that's potentially that's a very lovely way to end it. Is there anything I should have asked you or that you'd like to say that didn't come up or you'd like to emphasize? I would love it if you are a cyclist, if you went and pumped up your tires right now. <laughs> Please just keep them pumped up once a month. Don't over oil your chain. Little bit of oil is all it needs. Often people douse their chains in oil, like they're feeding a plant and you're not. It just needs a really thin film on the chain only. The cassette doesn't need it. And keep your bike indoors if you can. I totally understand if you don't have space, but that's one of the easiest ways to slow down any sort of wear and corrosion on your bike. So it'll make your local bike shop happy. Listening to Jenny gives us some really powerful insights about how we can work to make repair a more inclusive and welcoming space. It's incredibly important to make sure that everyone is able to feel confident and comfortable when learning to repair, something which is at the core of London Bike Kitchen. And it's still the key reason for why when we run community repair events, we try to make them radically open. It also seems like the barriers to bike repair are unfortunately moving in the same direction as we have seen happening with electronics, with companies making it more and more difficult for us to fix independently and affordably. What the Restart Project is doing and what Jenny is doing at the London Bike Kitchen overlap in so many ways. We're fighting for the same things and we can't expect to solve these problems unless we achieve a real right to repair, forcing manufacturers to behave differently, especially as e-bikes and scooters join the ever-growing pile of e-waste that we're all tackling. Radio is a show aired on Resonance 104.4 FM and a monthly podcast uploaded to the Restart Project website and found wherever you get your podcasts. As with all episodes of Restart Radio, we'll include links with background information to all of the issues and stories discussed over at the Restart Project. where we've also set up a fundraiser so if you've enjoyed this episode do make sure that you donate there to help to fund the future of the podcast the music that you've heard in today's episode was made with lasers and repurposed electronics and is a collaboration between Opto Noise and Cassini Sound. And big thanks to Restart's communications assistant, Holly, who did the research and planning for this episode. And now it's time to pack up the equipment and say goodbye to each other. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs>